You're listening to episode 140 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. Hello, I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 30th of March 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. And I'm very excited because I had an ice cream today. Did you? Oh, in you know the garden. what? I'm, did you really? Oh, it's first, first kind of weather of this year for ice cream, really, isn't it? I'm planning it to is. go to the beach for a little trip to the beach this evening after work. And I think I'm going to have ice cream as well. Sounds good. It's very British, isn't it? It's, it's like so a tiny British. bit of sun. And we're like, summer's here. <laughs> I believe my friend in Australia, I spoke to her the other day and she said it's 20 degrees over there. So she's got out the coat because it's, you know, it's the it's winter. <laughs> and I was like, it's 20 degrees yeah. here. I'm wearing like a vest. <laughs> yeah, we get massively excited when it's 20 degrees. It's just positively balmy. So on the show today, Steph, we have a BAFTA award-winning writer. Which is extremely, extremely exciting. It is, uh, and well-timed as well. Uh, so as of last week, uh, Greg Kasavin now has a, a BAFTA, a game BAFTA, for best narrative in the game Hades. And I talked to Greg about a month ago, perhaps. Um, and in the interview, as, as you'll hear in a moment, he I asked him if he's accepted yet that people like the game. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very humble person. And uh, in other interviews I've seen with Greg, he, he seems to find it difficult to accept how well received the game has been. He's um, res- resisting since, that compliment, yeah. Exactly. And since then, he's won a BAFTA, so <laughs> that's probably not helping. So yeah, Greg works for Supergiant Games, which has been around for over a decade now. They're a small indie studio, I believe based in San Francisco. They've made critically acclaimed games over the years, but Hades, which came out last year, has been particularly well received, um, winning ridiculous number of awards, selling extremely well, very good user reviews, all that kind of thing. And it caught my eye because of the way it weaves story into its gameplay and uh, digging into it a bit more. Greg is essentially the the writer who does this. And um, the script for Hades, I think, is something like 300,000 words long. It's Whoa. a not insignificant <laughs> endeavor. And yeah, I wanted to get Greg on to talk about practically how they work on these kind of massive narrative projects and the fact that he's a, a full-time writer at Supergiant, which is not always a common thing in the gaming industry. Uh, so this kind of follows on mm. from the gaming chats we've had with the likes of John Gold and Kelsey Beecham. And, and Greg similarly just kind of opens up his brain and just delivers amazing insight into <laughs> how to get into the industry, how to be a writer for games and how to kind of deal with interactivity in, in your narratives. So yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Well, lovely. Let's head over to your conversation with Greg. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. It's uh, late afternoon here. I think it's early morning your end. Yeah, not too early. Uh, a little past nine in the morning. So I'm I'm up and running by by this time typically. Excellent, yeah, and none of us have very far to go to get to our office these days. Yes, indeed. Uh, so you're credited with writing and design on the Supergiant website, and I was I was wondering uh, just to kick off, kind of how those two aspects of your role cross over. Yeah, it's a um, it's a great question. They um, they cross over very directly um, because I. I get to implement my own work into our games. Uh, our games are tend to have a pretty significant narrative component. Um, we've worked on 
you know, ever since our days working on Bastion, uh, where one of the kind of key aspects of it was that the full experience of it was narrated. So there's a kind of a omniscient sounding storyteller uh, unfolding the story as you play. Um, and then, you know, Transistor and Pyre, and now most recently Hades, have all uh, approached narrative differently. And um, so, you know, I I put all the words into the game ranging from menu text to the, the narrative text itself and, you know, getting the timings of everything right. So it's... Um, it's it's great that I get to be as hands-on in that way because I can ensure, you know, particular timings and so on. Like wh- when it comes to vocal performances, um, it's kind of like having a say in the editing and not just in the, uh, not just in the writing itself. Um, and, and I work on other aspects of the, of the design. Um, just, you know, we're, we're always thinking about the theme of our work from the very beginning um, our games are very kind of design driven. We don't start with a story and then back solve uh, the the play experience. Um, we do think about the interactive experience from the start because that is the defining characteristic of games. Uh, if I wanted to, you know, simply write stories, there are far more efficient media in which uh, to do that um, <laughs> because uh, building games is is very complicated, and and then you know story in games uh, like strictly spe- uh, strictly speaking is is uh, kind of unnecessary there are many fantastic games that have no story component whatsoever so to take on story in a game development project in addition to everything else is kind of uh, you know some would say it's kind of asking for more trouble um, but we um, we love it we see the value of it um, we think that through interactivity um, story can be very powerful in ways that are at least different than, um, than other media. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm working on many different aspects of the design and kind of, uh, helping, uh, figure out which sort of game we're even making and then how the story fits into that and ultimately, uh, integrating that. So I, I think day in and day out through much of the project, my role is kind of a, is that of kind of like a narrative designer, uh, but also a writer, because in many studios, the the writer and the narrative designer are not the same, um, not the same individual or individuals. We're a pretty small team at Supergiant, um, around twenty people, so it means we get to wear a lot of different hats, uh, which is one of the fun things about it for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting because something I was going to come to later is how the story in your games and you know what the player actually does in the games are so tightly melded together which is something you don't always see in games you you can have a a game that's great fun to play and it might also have a great story but sometimes they kind of work in opposition to each other a little bit um like i think yeah the the classic example is the uncharted games where people note that he's this charming adventurer and then in what you're actually doing you run around murdering loads of people (laughs) and both those things are, are fun and well executed but sometimes they kind of rub against each other but there's a certain friction and I think the striking thing about Supergiant's work is that the story magnifies the gameplay and the gameplay magnifies the story and it kind of all works together. Uh, thank you. It's, it's certainly what we, what we strive for. It's, it's a very conscious goal uh, for us. Um, that doesn't mean um, it, it is something that we think, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge all through our productions and we never really know 
uh, how we did until until the work is out there. Um, hearing from uh, folks such as yourself about uh, about how it worked out, but that for us, it's like part of the part of why we're so drawn to making games is is precisely what you said that that kind of that intersection uh, between the narrative and the play experience, and how can we how can we harmonize that um, as effectively as can be, and in and in new ways and in interesting ways, you know, interesting ways for us. Um, and if we find something interesting and compelling about it, we feel that that's you know best increases our chances for for the the end result, you know, to to be interesting for others as well. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of our listeners will be fiction writers more commonly writing novels and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. they won't necessarily know how a games developer kind of slots together um so in terms of a studio having like a dedicated writer such as yourself and um, particularly being so interwoven into the design aspects as well kind of how from your perspective how common is that in studios and particularly smaller studios like Supergiant? i think it is relatively uncommon um because as as mentioned um you know, I, I think story being a point of focus is just not not a requirement uh, for for many game teams. Um, and then even for teams where the story is a significant focus, um, often the the writer you know can be an external contractor, or there's a writing team that's kind of part part of a larger team. Um, I think for us having having the the writing and storytelling be kind of like a central point near near the near the heart of everything we do is um it's it's certainly not unique to us but it is relatively uncommon i would say um i think there are other uh, particularly among like independent studios i think there are there are other uh, game makers out there who um are drawn to the storytelling aspect of um of games and um you know, want to create games in part specifically to tell stories. Like I, um, I was thinking about the the game um, Kentucky Route Zero uh, recently, which is uh, a game. I think it was something like seven years in the making uh, through through um, something like five different uh, chapters, and it was finally completed in this last year. And it's this beautiful game, um, visually striking, but but kind of in the format of an adventure game. Um, so it's very kind of story driven and atmospheric. And I, I think that's an example of where, you know, the creators were clearly very invested in the story that they were telling and constructing a game around the story that they had in mind. So, um, yeah, that, that's certainly an example. And you, you mentioned Naughty Dog. Uh, that's an organization. That's a bigger organization, a bigger team where I think the, the kind of the, the writing discipline is near the top of the organization. Right. Like, I think the kind of stories that they want to tell, um, are, are not uh, are not kind of an afterthought. It it probably starts from this kind of desire to tell a really kind of a really intense cinematic story of some sort, and how do they kind of con- construct construct the game to fit that? Just to rewind a little bit um, about your kind of your route into where you are now, and I mean, this is what the tenth year of Supergiant, I think. Yeah, more. We we started in 2009. So yeah, right, we've wow. been we've been around for for a good long time at this point. Yeah, I guess maybe it's a decade since your first game came out. But obviously you would have been working on it. 
Yeah, it'll be Bastion's 10th uh, anniversary in July. Yes. Since, yeah, since it was originally launched. Wow, yeah. And um, looking at your background, you kind of came in through games journalism, is that right? And uh, Before kind of getting into the, the industry itself? Yeah, that that is, that is right. I started um, writing about games uh, kind of fresh out of high school. Um, I was... I've been playing games since my earliest memory. I've always been really fascinated by them um, and, and inspired by them. And I was playing games so often, or like kind of so much in high school that I felt at a certain point that I had to do something productive with it. <laughs> um, you know, parents applying a bit of pressure there and, and so on. And, and just out of personal desire as well. I, I actually always wanted to make games since I was a little kid, but I, I really struggled to teach myself uh, programming, which was the obvious inroad at least at the time. Um, but I loved uh, to write. And so I took to writing about games, uh, kind of being a critic of games, reviewing games. And um, it led to some small uh, writing gigs, um, you know, in my later teens. And I got, uh, it, which led to an internship at the website GameSpot, which had just launched. This is back in the later 90s. Um and I ended up working there all through uh, college. I, I majored in English at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, and uh, I, after, after I was done with, uh, with uh, my university studies, I um, just went to, I continued working at GameSpot full time. Um, and uh, by the end of my time there, I was editor in chief uh, running the editorial department um, and had reviewed uh, many hundreds of games. Um, so written a lot of stuff in addition to my, uh, other responsibilities, but I never lost sight of wanting to work on games and finally had, uh, had an opportunity come up, um, at the beginning of 2007, which is where I went to go join electronic arts, uh, as a producer, um, and that's where I met Amir Rao and Gavin Simon, who went on to found Supergiant Games, and I'm still working with them uh, to, to this day. And they were the ones, you know, it was with them that I first got to work in my current capacity um, as, uh, you know, doing uh, writing and design work on, on games, kind of closer to what I always wanted since I was eight years old. So it's a winding path. <laughs> um, I, I barely had started. I was close to 30 years old um, before I even started in game development. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, it was only something like, uh, three years after that, that we were kind of in the thick of it on, on Bastion. So yeah, uh, game, game development takes strange turns. I think for everyone, uh, there's no, there's no formula that I'm aware of as to how to like find oneself in this type of role. So I, I, I feel very, uh, I feel very fortunate that um, I finally got my shot. But yeah, Bastion was the first game I got to work where I essentially got to create a lot of fiction uh, for for the work, uh, despite having a lot of uh, professional writing experience up to that point. I you know was not a published author in fiction or anything of that sort. No, what an amazing first game to be involved with as a writer as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, cause I can imagine, you know, a lot of people trying to get into games writing have to go, you know, getting to work on, you know, a project that is 
can be so personal and that you have such uh, involvement with, you know, would ordinarily take a while to get to that point. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of the, you know, that was the draw of working on independent games for us. We were on a team of, you know, more than 100 people and seeing some of the work that was being done by independent creators, even at the time, there are some really kind of landmark games around that late 2000s era, games like Braid and uh, World of Goo and Plants vs. Zombies made by very small teams, but having those personal touches uh, that you mentioned. And uh, we wanted to see what we could do in that regard. And it was a chance for us to be more personal with our work in that regard. Um, you know, knowing that our, our chances of success statistically were were very low, but just wanting to see if we could complete the the endeavor itself, uh, kind of get it out of our system, <laughs> if nothing else. But then, yeah, Bastion, thankfully, did, uh, it was a, it w- turned out to be a success and uh, allowed us to stick together and keep going. Um, and we've, yeah, all, all seven of us from those days, um, we're all still together for all four of the games that we've made since. So it's it's been the kind of creative chemistry that we have. We owe a lot to that. Um, just the how we how we collaborate um, and and yeah for me personally kind of my responsibilities around the narrative are, um, are are that thing that I always wanted you know since I was eight years old like playing computer role-playing games and having my mind blown that um, you know people could make something like this these kind of expansive worlds that you can explore and stories that you can piece together kind of at your own rate um, I always loved reading as well, but it, you know, I was I was always aware of the kind of distinctive uh, differences between between the formats, like in, in terms of how stories can unfold. Yeah, and do you think having that kind of journalistic background and having been a critic for for a long while, did that then feed into you know being a designer on games? Because I'm thinking also of Tom Francis, yeah. who obviously he wrote at PC yeah. Gamer for ages, and uh, his kind of analytical mind that he spent kind of, yeah, I feel like he trained it being a journalist and then decided to actually go and make the games that he was talking about uh, to, to also great success. And I just wonder if that uh, was a case for you as well. Yeah. I, I think Tom has done uh, a lot of really brilliant work uh, by the way. And he's, yeah, he's one of those um, uh, I've, I've had a chance to, meet him every now and then. And yeah, I, th- I think his story is, is really inspiring. I'm, I'm quite envious because uh, he is able to single-handedly or that I, he works with teams as well, but he, um, he's been able to do so much. Uh, it's really impressive to me. I, I, I still have no real uh, programming ability or very limited, um, but yeah, he and his games have been filled uh, with a lot of charm um, that comes from and and the kind of like clearly the work of someone who's very thoughtful about how various systems tie together and and I I see what you mean how his um it it does feel like his past um as a journalist and critic informed his work and I do feel uh, for me it's been very valuable as well um just it's given me it's given me an excuse if nothing else to have played a lot more games than most people could have been able to justify. And that gives me, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a form of 
it's a form of literacy, right? It's, I'm having had access to so many different games. It just gives me a wide um, range of references. So when we're thinking about different ideas, I can often think of some old game that, you know, maybe tried something like it, something like what we we're talking about before. And whether it succeeded or failed, the the reference can be very useful. It's very useful to look at um, unsuccessful examples because there's often a very good idea at the heart of it. It just didn't quite come together. Or maybe it's a cautionary tale. You know, it's still any, any way it pans out, it's good to know. Um, and so I think... My background as a game critic um, has has helped really has helped me know what what's important to what my values are around games um, and and has forced me to be very specific in my ability to like understand what parts are working, what parts are not working. I think I think everyone instinctively has a critical capacity, right? We, we watch a movie and at the end we say, that was a good movie or that was a bad movie, right? Everyone has an innate ability to, to judge quality. Um, but being a critic, you know, requires going various levels deeper than that, right? It's understanding the why, why does this work? Why did I enjoy that specifically? What, uh, what was, what was surprising and interesting about it? How was it effective? Um, how did the different elements come together to create that experience? Um, and that is very useful in game development because everything comes, every every component of making a game is so kind of, everything is like more painstaking than expected oftentimes. Um, just putting a button on the screen, things like that, nothing is trivial in game development. Um, so it's, it, it's one of the pities of it really. Um, I, I, I compare it to, you know, if you're, if you're writing a, a novel, you can have a paragraph that, that is beautifully written and, and there it is. You, you can, you can see the promise right there in that, in that paragraph. Or if you have a film, you can, you can film a scene uh, between two actors and have, have a stirring performance. You know, it's not edited together. The, there's no, uh, you know, lighting pass on it yet or a color correction or anything like that, but you still know that the performance was excellent. Um, but with games, a lot of it is just a, a mess for a very long time um, until it starts to come together. And so it requires so much imagination and faith. I think sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased in this and that, I, I work on games, not not these other media, but it, it, it's just really hard to see what what the end. It's hard to imagine what the end result is going to be during during the early stages of game development. Um, so, yeah, my past as a as a critic, I think it helps me to just be able to identify the smaller components and, and have have a sense of how it might all ultimately come together and why a particular detail may be important, even though it doesn't seem important at the time, things like that. Those are still always uh, challenges uh, during development to, to decide what to even work on and what matters. But um, yeah, it, it's the one thing, you know, for me, games are the one thing I, it, that's been kind of like a constant um, that I, um, I, I, I lack uh, faith and, and confidence in many other 
aspects of, of life. But when it comes to games, I, I feel like they've always been there for me. I know what I like about them. I know what, what matters to me about them. Um, so there, there's a sense of a solace there for me, I think, from uh, partly from my background. Yeah, it, it, we had a, a writer on the podcast a few weeks back who uh, was saying that their, you know, their background is in screenplays, but they got to a certain point where they'd written so many screenplays that didn't get produced that that's when they decided to write a novel because, as you say, you know, you write a novel, you write a page of a novel, and there it is. <laughs> there's, there's nothing more to be done. Yeah. It exists as a thing, um, you know, even if the publishing process is a whole other thing. But um, you know, as a bit of art, it exists straight away, essentially. And it does sound like games is like the opposite end of that, where, where you know, it's only very late in the process that you finally get to see the thing that you're trying to produce. Yeah, it, it definitely varies um, from production to production. In fact, on, on Hades, we deliberately reconfigured our production to try to solve uh, this, this problem. Um, and it was developed uh, as an early access game, which, which means that we launched it in an unfinished form, yet, yet kind of a fully, fully playable form. So imagine, you know, just kind of a smaller, a smaller portion of a full game. You could still like a demo almost like that. Um, and, and that structure, you know, building the game out piece by piece um, while it was publicly available forced us to have it be, you know, kind of a complete feeling experience that throughout most of development and have it be fully playable, uh, all that kind of thing. Whereas with a typical game production, um, if, if the production process isn't uh, structured in a certain way or isn't super disciplined in a certain way, then it can, you know, games can go months and months without being kind of end to end playable uh, or, you know, there, there are bugs all over the place. You're just working on one little corner of it, but not really playing it. Um, so for us, it was really important that we be able to just get in and experience the game for what it is um, uh, basically whenever we could. Um, but yeah, it took us many years to get to that type of development process. And we, uh, you know, we, it worked out so well for us that, uh, we'll, we'll have to think about using it again. But yeah, uh, the, I, I do think the norm that I've experienced at least is that, as you say, um, for, for much of development, you can't really experience the game in a way that you hope it will finally end up, you know, maybe it's very, like it may run very poorly, for example, like the, you know, the frame rate is terrible. Um, but, you know, the engineering team is like, oh, well, don't worry, we'll optimize it. One day it's going to run very smooth. It's like <laughs> things like that. And you can't, if you're working on the design, for example, but the game isn't like running well, how are you supposed to plan all, all, all the kind of moments and encounters out? properly um so yeah there's there's just so much guesswork and uncertainty uh in in game development but i i know uh <laughs> that's not the theme of this this podcast but it adds to the sense of you know it adds that dimension of uncertainty when when you're coming at it from a writing standpoint a writer may not even know how their work is going to fit in to the to the game um while while working on a script or something like that um, or there may be more like with a movie or show production, I suppose, or maybe massive, massive rewrites because 
you know, this initial script, oh, it just didn't work at all. We decided to go in a different direction with this level. So none of this stuff makes any sense anymore. And other times there, there are other types of challenges where games that are more cinematic in nature, you know, they'll create these lavish uh, cinematic sequences, right? They, they have the actors come in, they did these kind of performance captured scenes, like, like you mentioned in Uncharted. And now they're kind of stuck with those scenes. They can't redo those. They did all the work. They have to like then, they have to sometimes bend over backwards to like make the design fit fit the constraints of these like cinematic scenes that they've created. So it's all kind of games get very Frankensteined together uh, in that way. It's very messy um, in my experience. So um, I, back to you know back back to our we're we're fortunate because I. Being involved with a design, I know when the winds of change begin to blow, and <laughs> when when you know I I can I I just have more uh, space to adapt the story, knowing that knowing where we have to have flexibility, uh, no, knowing where not to like sort of pitch our tent too uh, too firmly from a narrative standpoint, because, because if the, if the design changes, it can really disrupt the story. So yeah, it, it just adds, as I'm even trying to articulate it, it just, you know, you have all the issues of just trying to tell a good story, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which is very difficult in itself. And then on top of that, this whole uh, process of trying to integrate it effectively, mm-hmm. have it be well told um, in, in the game context. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because, you know, when we talk to, to writers and editors, in fact, about the editing process of a book, you know, it can be quite painful as a writer to suddenly realise that 20,000 words of your book doesn't need to be there. And, you know, the to make it a better book, right. you have to remove it. But at least it's kind of free to do. You haven't spent a million dollars producing those 20,000 words or what have you, which yeah. in games development is is a thing. Um, in terms of that early access uh, kind of process that you had, what – what was it like essentially writing in public with something that was not yet finished yeah. and having that out in the world uh, when you know it may not yet have been uh, either to the quality you wanted or the complexity or the, there might have been bits missing? What was that like uh, as, as a writer? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. One of the one of the exciting but also really scary things about making an early access game is that. Early access games are typically not known for having um, significant narrative components because early uh, the most successful early access games are ones that are kind of highly replayable. They're they're systems driven. They they kind of gain a loyal following of of players because uh, early access games benefit from continuous feedback. Um, so if you have like a linear story-driven game, you know, that's maybe eight or, or 12 hours of gameplay or something like that, the the issue you would run into in early access is players would just kind of burn through that story uh, in a few days. And then they would say, where's the rest of it? And the problem is it takes, it can take years to make that much story in a video game. So um, typically early access games do lean for these kind of like replayable structures and they they don't have a story component because their audiences would just kind of burn through the story too quickly. Um, we we noted that maybe there's a way uh, to bridge that, and and we were attracted to the idea of of trying to have kind of a narrative rich 
game in early access. So the way I approached it um, was was kind of uh, serially. I thought of um, I thought of like a show, for example, of uh, where our early access launch was like the pilot episode, introducing um, some of the cast of characters, um, setting the stage for uh, what was at stake for them, um, and then uh, essentially ending on a cliffhanger, uh, as it were. Uh, and um, we. So, so we, in fact, from update to update in early access, we would add bits of story knowing that we would eventually rip them out of the full game just to kind of create this ongoing, you know, serial experience for our early access players. And then um, once the game was fully complete, it would, it would feel cohesive. So, so my, my best analogy is it's the equivalent of, you know, you, you can you can watch a show from episode to episode as it comes out these days you know there's the there's the show WandaVision that many people are tuned into and they're releasing one episode a week right so every week you know you're finding out a little bit more but then of course uh, Netflix kind of uh, introduced many people to the model of here's the entire season you just binge watch you know a show for hours and hours and hours and take the whole thing in um, most games are the equivalent of that experience. You can just binge binge play the game. Um, so our version 1.0 of Hades is like binge playing all the all the episodes of Hades, uh, as it were, um, if if that makes sense. So we pulled it all together as a complete experience for version 1.0. But for those playing in early access, it, it kind of unfolded more gradually. Um, it was a great experience for me because um, it. It did, it did force me, I, I felt a pressure to kind of get it right the first time with each of these updates. Um, I did find it interesting that the moment anything came out of a character's mouth, it was just considered canonical, you know, by the audience immediately. So I, I, I was fortunate to never have to like rewrite a character entirely uh, or, or uh, uh, God forbid, remove a character or something like that. I don't even, I can't even imagine what that would have been like with respect to our audience. We would have gotten a lot of, um, a lot of negative feedback, I think, if we had to do something major like that. But that's because we were getting positive feedback for what we were doing. Uh, players actually were enjoying uh, the, the characters and um, how the story was unfolding, um, by and large. So it gave me... Um, and gave us as a team a great deal of confidence to keep moving forward. And it resulted in, in just a faster and more efficient writing process than what we've had in the past. Um, and for me as a writer, it was fantastic because it made me feel like the, the characters were, were protected, um, that, that the risk I would, the, the fear I would normally have of maybe this whole game will change and I'll have to completely redo all of this stuff it made many of those fears evaporate because players liked what we were doing. So, well, we're just going to keep building on this then. Um, and we're not going to keep second guessing this over and over as might be our natural tendency. Um, so it, um, we, we had this kind of, we had this hunch that early access might work well for narrative games, but it worked even better uh, than, than I would have expected in this regard. Um, and not to mention the feedback that we did get was it was extremely useful of just, uh, you know, as a writer, you want to know what are the parts of your work that are, uh, you know, distracting. Wh where are people taking something away from the work that you did not intend to be there or, or kind of getting 
getting thrown off? Or are they getting, con- you know, are they getting confused in ways that you did not want them <laughs> to get confused in and things like that? And getting that feedback along the way, you know, we, we definitely would iterate on individual uh, moments and bits of dialogue. Uh, but, but those were just, you know, refinements. That was like the editing process as opposed to wholesale um, changes and scrapping things and, uh, and that sort of thing. And yeah, and, and it also just resulted in a really big game from a narrative standpoint. Um, Hades ended up with more than 300,000 words in it, which is our longest script of any game we've made. And I did not realize it was that long until it was done. I, I, I thought it never would have exceeded the length of our previous game, Pyre, which has a lot of writing in it. Um, but it just ended up that way in part because of the efficiency of the writing process and, and the encouragement uh, of our players. So yeah, I, I would highly recommend it to any other uh, developers, uh, you know, considering a narrative game in the early access model. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if other developers uh, go down that route uh, of you know using story as a way to bring players along through the early access rather than it potentially being a component that comes in right towards the end. Um, and I think right. we've talked on the podcast before uh, about serialization in general and, you know, it's something that used to be very common in literature and these days is is not so common. You know, it's something that's been picked up by yeah. TV and uh, radio and that kind of thing. Um but actually, you know, I, as a writer, I find serialization incredibly helpful because having that kind of little feedback loop with your audience as you go along um, yes. keeps you going, gives you extra motivation. You know, if you ever struggle with uh, motivational productivity issues or anything, you know, it's such a, an amazing extra factor to have, isn't it? Yes. And and I, I find the kind of the constraint of the, you know, the, the, like the novella or a short story, you know, ser- serialized writing by definition, I guess, you know, comes in more concise um, packages. And, and I think the constraint of, you know, having, having to kind of pack a meaningful story into, into like a more reasonable word count, I suppose. I, I think that's a very useful um, writing exercise as well. I think back to um, w- one of my favorite writers, uh, fantasy writers, at least, uh, is uh, Michael Moorcock, who who wrote um, the the Elric of Melnibone series, which I which I love dearly. And those, you know, I, I experienced them as a series of of novels, but they they started their lives as as kind of serialized um, works, I guess, in like you know monthly magazines or something like that. So, and I and I get uh, I I find that interesting to think about because I see it in the work. It's so the stories are so efficiently told. Um, they get moving really quickly, um, which, which I, I, you know, also enjoy long sprawling works. Uh, but I, um, you know, when it, it, there's a, there's a certain, um, when, when a writer can get things moving really quickly, I, I admire that a lot. Yeah, I, I had the same thing with Isaac Asimov's foundation books, particularly the early ones, which you know started off as short stories essentially, and then got compiled into the novels that exist today. Um, and I think you, right. like it's interesting with Hades because uh, I came in, I first played it right at the end of early access, so I didn't really experience the early access thing. And it's interesting that people playing it back then essentially would have had a quite a different story experience yeah. to everybody else. Um, but but playing it now that structure is still there in that you can 
pick up Hades, play it for 10 minutes, and you will get a satisfying little chunk of story. But equally, you can play it for you know 30 hours <laughs> and uh, the story works in that form as well. So it kind of works both in bite-size and longer-form structures. Yeah, that's what we were... Um... That's what we were hoping for. Um, that it's it's also, um, I think, another aspect of it that that was interesting, at least for us to consider on the development side, is the story is is largely optional. Um, there, uh, the vast majority of characters in the game, if you don't want to speak to them, you don't have to. It's fine um, it, because uh, Hades is this kind of action-packed game, and we don't know what are all the reasons people want to play it at any given time. Uh, sometimes you just want to play a game to blow off some steam after a hard day of work. And if that game has, you know, hours of cutscenes or whatever between you and the gameplay, that's not a game you want to play. So we wanted players to engage with the narrative rather than for the narrative to be thrust upon them. And that's a, a lesson that we um, have learned before Ever since our Bastion days, um, you know, again, with the narration technique in Bastion, our, our goal, we didn't imagine that game initially to have narration in it. We were just trying to solve the problem of how to have a narrative experience at the pace of the player that wasn't just interrupting the player at every turn. Um, and the solution in that case was, well, just have it be narrated. And as fast as you go, the narration is going to keep up. And in the case of Hades... Um, the solution is to have it be optional. So if you want to engage with the narrative, there it is. Uh, the characters will, you know, literally wave to you um, and have something to say if you want to come up and and speak with them. But if you're in a hurry, you don't you don't have to do that. Um, and and with that goal uh, being as as you said, of it, it should work in in kind of discrete uh, chunks. So if you only play the game for twenty minutes or so, you can have these kind of flavorful. Um, interactions with the characters and start to kind of get a sense of, of the world. And over time, it will all start to fit together uh, more neatly. And of course, we also have to account for uh, the nonlinearity and the randomness inherent to the structure, um, th which makes for some really interesting writing challenges because uh, we have some character subplots that, you know, stories that intersect, but we don't know if you've met the other character, much less, you know, or, or I should say, we don't know if you've uh, how much you've spoken to the other character, much less if you've even met them. So we have to kind of enter certain plot points, accounting for many different uh, possible permutations um, of uh, like uh, of player paths. So it has a bit of that um, kind of interactive fiction type of structure, uh, despite not ha not presenting a lot of explicit choices. Um, there's a lot of uh, kind of funneling based on how how you've played what what you've accomplished and, and so forth and it was it was really interesting to think about that and try to solve all the issues inherent to that yeah i mean from a purely kind of logistical nuts and bolts like when you sit down at your desk and, and do the work i i find it hard enough just writing a linear novel <laughs> um i can't quite fathom how you you know write a script that is 300,000 words long and also has all this non-linearity so it's you know extremely reactive to what the players are doing in quite subtle ways and just practically how do you keep track of all of those different permutations um i don't have a i don't have a great 
solution to this. Um, I keep track of it in in spreadsheets. You know, really is the and but the real answer is I keep track of it in my head. Um, I um, it's a it's a character focused game, and I through the writing process I become very close to the characters. They they start to take on they start to feel almost, you know, indistinguishable from acquaintances to me or something. You know, I know them the same way I might know someone else. Um, and, uh, but I have a responsibility to them greater than my responsibility to, to most people. And that's to kind of help their story to, uh, to be brought to light. Um, and so I, I think about them um, individually and what they're, I think about what their role is in the game um, and what are all the things that they might observe or care about. Um, and uh, I would write those things basically. Um, and I, I would, I would, I would track the, the, the more complex storylines where, where different characters uh, paths would intersect and, and just about every character has some sort of, has some sort of overlap with other with other characters in the in the game. Um, so those would get special attention, and those are more like kind of a linear chunk of story where there's there's you know a, a more a more linear plot line, knowing that the player is going to kind of experience this uh, scene by scene over a period of time. Uh, there are some important considerations of like you know again an arbitrary amount of time can pass between when you speak to a character once and speak to them again. So it's important to um, have those moments that where the player can um, reorient themselves around a particular plot line so that you don't get completely bewildered as to what might be happening between these two characters just because you you know forgot something that happened 20 hours ago. You, sh- you shouldn't feel totally disoriented. And, and the individual scenes between characters uh, tend to be quite concise. We, uh, you know, again, in the spirit of Hades being a, an action-oriented game, we wanted the scenes to be quite punchy. It's usually just kind of a brief back and forth and that's it. So you could be on your way. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, if you had told me that it, if you had told any of us at the beginning of the development that it was going to be a 300,000 word script, we would have you know, laughed ourselves out of the room and said, no way are we doing that because we, we had made a game with a gigantic story uh, in Pyre. And what we told ourselves going into Hades was like, oh, th- this game, you know, it'll still be a very character-driven game, but it'll be, you know, less dense narratively. So it's ironic to me that, that, the, that the script turned out longer. It, it, it turned out longer because we just chipped away at it piece by piece through these early access updates at every end of, you know, we were recording voiceover frequently, but it just never felt it. Um, maybe just toward the end, it started to feel like it was legitimately big, but like it, it, character by character, scene by scene, it never felt like an overwhelming amount of writing. Um, I, I still find the, you know, I have very limited experience writing novels. Uh, the, the, you know, the one time I gave it a serious go, I, I, you know, I gave up at the, you know, 80,000 word mark or something like that. Or uh, I didn't, I didn't consciously give up. I, I didn't come back to it. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I haven't been able to get through a, a linear piece of writing in that fashion 
Um, so, so to me, this is, is easier than that. Um, because, because I can, I, I think you said something very key around the serialization. I think the serialization has helped me to, to, to not feel like it's this looming, intimidating thing. Cause I could just, you know, have, I could just work on these individual scenes and plot lines that, that don't seem that scary one by one, but then, you know, multiplied by 30 characters and, and all this type, <laughs> type of stuff, uh, it turns out it, it adds up. Yeah. Yeah, it's like like a scene or a chapter is easy to write, uh, but a, a novel or a, th- right. a three hundred thousand word computer game <laughs> is not easy. Um, I think it's useful sometimes to not know what you're getting into in a way. Absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I I like to say I, I I think many worthwhile creative endeavors would never be undertaken if the creators actually knew all all of what they would end up going through to get to the end if you knew up front it's it's always with a degree of optimism that we uh maybe naivete that we <laughs> move forward into some of these things um but it's yeah um you know as long as as long as you can enjoy uh the journey the the process itself find joy in the creation um i think i think that helps whether the whether the rough parts of, you know, whether it's writing or, or game development, th- those I see, I, I experience a lot of kind of common emotions between the two sides of it. Yeah. Uh, the, structurally, Hades, I, I find really, really interesting because as a, it's kind of a rogue light, isn't it? The, but it's not, it's not the kind of game I normally play, I suppose, is the way of putting it. And you seem to have, managed to produce something that appeals to people who do normally like that kind of game and also people who uh, are not normally drawn to it. And I wonder if that is in large part, certainly for people like me who don't normally enjoy it, you know, the story I think is what keeps me coming back because although it's enormously fun to play, when I think of other games that maybe superficially have a similar kind of repetitive structure like Spelunky or something, I would, yeah. with that I've played it for a couple of hours and gone, oh yeah, this is this is really this is a really good game, but I, I, I'm not going to keep playing it um whereas with hades i've got through whatever that barrier is and and i'm still playing it and i think for me that's because story is such an important aspect uh, of anything for me but in games included and because the story with the the greek mythology and the, the the attempts to escape from hell fits so perfectly into the repeating loop of gameplay like which one came first and it feels quite effortless, but I, I'm assuming it probably wasn't. <laughs> yeah, they, um, you know, they, the, the two sides of it came very closely uh, together. Um, we, and and thank you for that, by the way. I do, I do think, um, you know, not. It's funny to hear someone like me say it, maybe because speaking as a writer, to sound so clinical about it. But for us, the story it doesn't just exist for its own sake. It really is a tool to, to keep a player um, engaged and have them feel invested. And, and um, we want to create games that um, can leave players with a lasting and positive impression after they're finished playing. Um, And I think it's, it's a story is a really, um, almost almost vital uh, it's not necessarily vital again you know i have a 
lasting positive impression of, of Street Fighter 2, for example, um, which I played a lot in high school. But, uh, you know, a moving story, as, as you well know, it's like it sticks with you forever. Um, so we, we've always valued narrative as, as one of many ways in which a story can keep a player um, wanting to continue and find out what happens next, right? The, the, the question you ask yourself in a compelling story is what happens next. Um, so that, so we identified that opportunity in the, in the roguelike genre at the very beginning of the project. Um, we were drawn to making a roguelike game, which is, uh, you know, these are games characterized by dying and starting over. That's their essential property. Um, or, or actually their essential property is that they're different every time you play. Um, so you, they're kind of like classic arcade games, except, you know, with, with randomness and different surprises each, each time you start over. So they have to kill you. Um, because if, if they never killed you, you'd never start over and never experience this, this sort of joyful loop of, of discovery. Um, we were playing a lot of games like that. We were drawn to the format and we, we were seeing as, as you say, in these kind of classic examples like Spelunky, um, that, that narrative is not really a point of focus in the style of game, but we saw, uh, we, we thought that there was an opportunity there and we loved the idea of, um, a roguelike game with narrative continuity, essentially, because even in the, um, even in the most hardcore roguelike game, where every time you die, you start with absolutely nothing. You know, you do carry forward your knowledge as a player. And with your knowledge, death after death, you're able to make more progress and become more proficient. So we loved the idea of aligning that player experience with, with, the, with the narrative experience. Have a character who, who also is kind of conscious from one failure to the next um, and is able to build on his... Uh, growing knowledge of what's going on and have and you know when you encounter when you play a roguelike game you fight the same boss time after time you know that boss uh you you know that enemy you've seen it many times before and like why not have the characters be self-aware around this as well it's like hey you know you got me last time i'm gonna get you back those kind of uh, moments felt really exciting to to execute um and and that's um and we chose the greek myth theme um because it felt we we initially or there's a bit of a side story here too we initially uh chose the greek myth theme but specifically around the labyrinth of crete it was going to be a game about theseus uh trying to hunt down uh, the minotaur you know at the center of the labyrinth because we thought the labyrinth setting would be perfect for a roguelike game you know every time you play it's a different labyrinth you can't really navigate it um, but we discovered, uh, you know, as we started working on that, uh, basically it was only a couple of months in, we were running into some tonal issues with it. It was, it just was taking on this kind of overly uh, serious and grim tone that we knew we didn't want. We, we knew we didn't want for it to be a requirement that you already love Greek myth in order to be able to enjoy this game. And it was feeling a bit too much like that. Um, so um, in my research into Theseus and the Minotaur, um, I had also happened upon this uh, uh, this character of Zagreus, who I'd never heard of, despite being interested in Greek myth since I was a little kid. Uh, and you know, Zagreus, according to some versions of his myth, is the son of Hades. And I had no idea that Hades had a son. 
Um, and that, and there's so little information about Zagreus that, that that alone was like incredibly compelling. What's the story of this guy? And, and further, you know, starting to think about a game set in the underworld, what happens if you die in the underworld? You're already there. You, you, you just go back, you know, you, you lose your progress because it's, it's where all dead souls go. So it just seemed to fit so well. And then, you know, this idea of kind of a family drama, thinking of uh, the notorious hellhound Cerberus as, as the family pet, uh, things of that nature. I think from there, the, the tone of the game um, was kind of right what we thought we wanted. And, and uh, we started, uh, we, it came together quite quickly once we sort of reset the theme that way. But um, in answer to the original question, which came first between the structure and the story, we were always looking for an opportunity to uh, tell a story through this type of structure. And despite, you know, everything we've just been talking about and the fact that personally the story is a really valuable part of, of the game for me, at the same time, you know, you acknowledged earlier that there will be some players who will not want to engage with it and will, you know, just fly past all the characters to get back to the next battle, either as their permanent way of playing or just sometimes they might not want to engage with the story aspects. And it's kind of as as the writer, where do you come down on in in terms of that uh like you know as novel writers if if you've written a novel if someone buys your book they may or may not get to the end of your book i suppose but the book is the thing whereas your contribution for some players they may just ignore it completely i'm just kind of wondering how you deal with that internally yeah i'm i'm very comfortable with that um because i'm writing for the people who do engage with it. It's, it's the same. The, the analogy is your novel, you know, people who choose not to read the novel, you can't be too concerned about them. You're concerned for, for your readers, not, not for your non-readers. Um, and uh, yes, we have this middle ground of like a player who may be less engaged with the narrative, but things uh, using the example of the ending at, at bigger studios, um, sometimes they don't, it can be tempting to not invest a lot of time in your game ending because, you know, they have these statistics of like, well, only, you know, 25% of our players are even going to get here. It's like, well, it's for them. Um, honor it, it, it. You have a responsibility to honor the time investment, uh, that the players that your players put in. Um, you don't need to, you, you, you shouldn't not focus on your ending just because not everyone will get there like out of a sense of integrity to the work uh you 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 owe it to those who do uh experience that point but um in you know in in bastion uh, going back to our very first game the the rate at which you play like whether you're speeding through the levels or or kind of taking it slow and examining every nook and cranny um, has a significant influence on how uh, aspects of scenes unfold. We had to develop techniques where the narrator would, would keep up with your actions and not sort of queue up a whole bunch of audio lines that would then get out of sync with what you were doing. Um, so it made it so that I would have to account for the possibility that uh, players might get sort of a, a thinner version of the story. Um, and and um, and that would be fine because it, it should 
it should still work for them no matter how quickly they play. Um, and um, all of our games have had story moments, you know, off the beaten path, uh, optional moments. And I've, I discovered, you know, since the Bastion days, um, we had these, we had these optional sequences that, that kind of revealed the backstories of the different characters. And we, we would get this feedback that the players love those sequences. Um, they love the stories in them and they were like, I can't believe that this is optional. Um, cause this, this part of the game is so, is so interesting. And I found that very, um, I, I, I would think about that a lot. And I, I feel that the optional sense of it is part of what makes it uh, compelling because you have that sense of discovery. You as a player have that experience of like, Oh my God, you know, th- I could have missed this. Um, and yet it was so good. And so each of our games has had kind of really important, but, but strictly optional moments in the story, um, like that. Um, and, and Hades is basically just going even farther in that regard to where almost the entire narrative is optional to that degree, but it makes it so that, um, almost everyone, you know, we, we don't actually hear from players who skip all the story. That's, that's the, we, we did all the work. Uh, but but in practice, people speak to the characters and engage with the story seemingly all the time. But I think they do it. The, the, the paradox is the optional nature of the story is what makes so many players engage with it because they can engage with it on their own terms. They want to go up and have the conversation. They're in the mindset that they're ready for this story to unfold as opposed to it, you know, being kind of served to them as a non-interactive scene and as an interruption. So it just changes the the context of the story. And then if players miss stuff, it's fine because the game is loaded with, you know, little events and mutually exclusive permutations of story scenes and so on. So there's never been a game we've made where a player could like experience 100% of the story content anyway. Um, That I suppose is somewhat unique to games, but tying back to novels, I mean, you you still don't know how someone is going to read your novel, they may, um, uh, you know, my, my wife does a thing where she will skip to the end of a novel, read the ending and then go back and kind of, kind of make sure that it's not going to pull something over on her, Yeah. make sure it's kind of okay. And you know, that's, that may sound, um, that may sound terrifying to a, to a writer, but you know, you can't, you don't know how, if, if someone is going to linearly read every word and take everything in, they, they might kind of bounce around, uh, for example. So games are just kind of more, it's just more uh, explicitly part of the consideration in the writing. I think that that, that is going to be the case that the players won't kind of experience the story in in this kind of pristine way that you imagine could be possible. Most most players won't have precisely that that experience. No, no, exactly. And and you're right that actually uh, novels are. Any any form is exactly the same, you know. Whether someone watches a movie while yeah. looking at their phone, you know, which to me I'm horrified right. by. But if that's how someone else enjoys movies, then that's fine if they're enjoying it. Um, yeah, it all works slightly differently for different brains, doesn't it? <laughs> at this point, it's probably safe to say that Hades has been well received. Uh, so, you know, if you look on Steam, for example, it's it's in the reviews bit it says overwhelmingly positive and that's courtesy of a hundred and seventeen thousand people and you've had all these game of the year awards and best action games on nintendo switch you're 
seem to be still selling ahead of you know Mario and Zelda and Animal Crossing and this kind of thing. And I'm thinking of the the no clip documentaries on YouTube, which we'll link to down in the show notes. But yeah, you when you're being talked to about the reception of the game, you seem slightly shell shocked. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, we're recording this at the end of February and kind of where you're at in terms of accepting that you did make a good game. Yeah, yeah I, I'm still, you know, um, I will never, here I am, you know, at a loss for words, so maybe <laughs> that gives you your answer. Um, it, it's still uh, amazing that, it was so warmly received knowing that knowing all these factors that it's a game with randomness at the heart of it, where you strictly don't have to engage with this narrative. And uh, how could a game like this create a universally positive reception? Um, I, I, it's, um, it's not that we didn't think it was good. Uh, we thought we've, we've made critically, we're very fortunate to have made uh, critically acclaimed games in the past. So I, I think we grew to have the sense that Hades was, you know, for many of our players, an even better game than our past work. But I think my personal sense was that it was, it was more marginally better rather than overwhelmingly better which which is what the kind of which is what the numbers say <laughs> uh, whether it's like uh, review scores or or player accounts and, and that sort of or you know awards and that sort of thing so i'm i'm very happy to accept uh, that outcome um i was genuinely surprised by it um in part because you know again it, it was an early access game it was available for people to play for a, a good couple of years before this kind of explosive 1.0 launch so we we thought it was more of a known quantity but it turned out to to just kind of uh, as we say come out of left field for people like oh my god what is this game you know th this is uh, people were you know surprised and delighted by this game that we had been actively trying to promote uh you know from one update to the next for for a good couple of years um so it took and we knew that there are many people out there who they don't want to play an early access game they'll wait until it's done um, we, we, it was difficult to know how many people like that there, there would be. And it turned out to be, um, a lot. And I, you know, we, I think, I think luck is, is a huge factor. Um, it's a huge factor in playing Hades. It's a huge factor in real life. Um, we can control the quality of our work. We can't control the context in which um, it exists. And things like, you know, when it comes to winning awards, you as a creator don't control that. You, you don't control what everyone else makes. So it, it, from a certain point of view, it's like, well, I, I just kept waiting for... We were we were very fortunate to be able to complete work on this game, you know, during during COVID and everything. As a smaller team, we were just more re resilient to the to the day to day issues that created for so many game developers. And game development is an industry that that kind of suffered less than many others, and even still, there are huge challenges. 
So we were able to keep working and, uh, you know, the circumstances, I think, in some ways emboldened us even more. We heard from players in early access telling us that it, this game is like helping them through hard times and stuff. It's it's quite it's quite motivating when you know that you're working on something that that matters to people. Um, so we kind of gave it everything we've got. But even still, that doesn't that doesn't tell you that, you know, every like hard work and success, unfortunately, aren't strongly correlated so I'm incredibly grateful. Um, um, I, I'm aware that, you know, this, this may be, I, we, we don't, we don't sort of delude ourselves into thinking that if, and when we make something again, that it may, you know, that it will be even more successful than this or something like that. It feels like it was a game that, you know, was in the right place at the right time for a lot of people. Um, we did do our best on it. It, it benefits from our years of experience working together as a team and sort of pulling together uh, the best of what we can do, but the game industry is really competitive. Um, that's we did all those things just in an effort to try to compete um, in a in a in an industry with so much talent um, and so many high quality games being released all the time. Um, so it's just hard to make something that stands out. So we were just trying to stand out, and the part where it. Um, has been this well received and this successful as yeah as beyond what we what we could have expected for sure. Yeah, and after it's, it's a lovely question to be able to ask actually, but yeah, after that kind of overwhelming success of a project, I'm curious about what changes when you know the team goes goes back to the office or at the moment I guess the the Zoom office. Uh, is there a sense that you're now you know your your main competition almost is is yourselves? Where do you go next? Um, I think, you know, it's, I, I may not, um, I may not know yet, but I, I think I, for me, the closest analogy in my own experience to, to the, the reception to Hades is, is the reception to Bastion, our first game where, where it did, you know, we kind of came out of nowhere as a small studio, nobody had ever heard of with this game that ended up being very well received and it earned, you know, independent game of the year and downloadable game of the year types of awards uh, back in 2011. Um, and, and we were elated. It was amazing. It was an amazing experience. Um, just to, just to, you know, so many game developers that we admire so much, respect so much, you know, would, would say kind words to us. And we, we, it's just, you know, it's an amazing feeling to earn the favor of those that you uh, admire, whose, whose work has inspired you. Um, and, and it did create, um, you know, it did create an, an amount of pressure, I suppose, on what we, on our next game, Transistor. Um, but we've always, but we felt that ever since just the, we've always wanted to do, do work that would honor our players and live up to their live up to their faith, the faith that they put in us kind of respect their time and, and just create another good experience for them. But I think, I think that's largely a positive pressure. Um, it's just having people who believe in you, you don't want to let them down like that, that type of, that type of pressure. Um, and we have that just among ourselves at the, on the team. So it's just kind of a macro version of, of the, of the day-to-day feeling. So, we we're also like at peace. We've always been at peace ever since the Bastion days. Of we we don't we don't fall into the trap of 
saying, you know, our next game is going to be even better. It's going to be even bigger, even better. We just tell ourselves, let's try and make sure that anything that we make has the capacity to be someone's favorite game of ours. Um, that's it. It doesn't have to be better than the, the previous game. It just has to kind of stand on its own merits. Because when we, you know, when people start sending us emails of, you know, getting tattoos of bastion imagery or something like that, how can we tell someone like that, that our next game will be even better? <laughs> they had some kind of really meaningful personal experience with the game and we'll be lucky to make something that they value anywhere near as much as that. So um, I think hopefully, as you can hear, we, we have a, we, we do, we do experience some of the pressure, but we, we try not to let it, we, we try to kind of be realistic about it um, also. And just, uh, we, we try to pursue projects that are creatively exciting to us, uh, again, in the hopes that that will translate to our players. And I, I don't see why that would, why that would change, um, regardless of the outcome, uh, of, of this past game. But having said all that, you know, we, we, we figured this stuff out, um, one project at a time. So we, uh, I will be very curious to see what we do next, uh, same as, uh, any of our fans, I suppose. Excellent. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I imagine you have even more fans waiting to see what is coming next, but Greg, thank you so much for your time today. That was just uh, an hour of amazing insight into into your process and i'm sure any budding young emerging early career games writers are going to be writing down lots of notes thank you it was was my pleasure thank you again for thinking of me for this thanks for listening and thanks to greg for joining us on this week's episode if you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook. And if you head over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you can find out all about all of our programmes and free resources. Yep, we also have a Discord channel. So if you want to get involved with a free online writing community, that's a great way to meet people from all around the world, sharing tips on how to write and taking part in writing sprints and generally helping each other out. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again for listening. Keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode when we're talking with Thomas McMullen about his remarkable and unnerving book, The Last Good Man. Mm-hmm.